I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16. If you didn't bring a, a Bible with you, no problem. We've got Bibles there provided for you in uh, the, the pew rack right in front of you. It'll be on page 950, 950. It'll help you to have it open to kind of follow along. We just go verse by verse, line by line, and see what the text says there. Romans chapter 16. And as we come to the end of what many call the most glorious book in all of the Bible, we, we find an almost peculiar ending. Rather than another chapter about the glories of justification or the mysteries of election or the beauties of sanctification, we find a glorified phone book, a, a bunch of names, 34 names to be exact. It seems like kind of an, an odd ending to a book like this. But I trust that as we, as we listen to the way that the Holy Spirit moves Paul to speak to and speak about these people with, with this deep affection in his voice, we'll understand why he's done this. And it's, it's in this, this affection that we, we see one of the many marks of God's fingerprints all over this, this book of Romans. Because the God who is love produces love among his people. That's what marks churches. It's supposed to mark God's people is is love. In the church, we're supposed to see a foretaste of, of heaven, that land where we will know perfect love without end. And the way that, that God produces that love among his people is by uniting them in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And that's how this this book began. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's in the gospel that God shows his love for people like us, sinners, rebels. He shows his love for us by by just putting on full display Jesus who came to die for our sins and then to rise from the dead. And it's through trusting in Christ that we are united in this this gospel love. The church is, is a bunch of people who have been set free from slavery to sin and have now been called into service of the Savior. He gives us strength in this journey that that we're making together as we're looking to him by faith and taking every step by faith in the power of of his great grace. We sense this kind of love in Romans chapter 16. And my hope is that as we look at it, that we will see that same kind of love continue to be manifested here at, at Delray Baptist Church. So to help us walk through this this section here, basically what we're going to do is we're going to look at three simple points this morning. We're going to see gospel friends, gospel friends, gospel enemies, gospel enemies, and then gospel promises. Gospel promises. Friends, enemies, promises of the gospel. Number one, gospel friends. So this, this chapter kind of it starts out like kind of a, a spirit-inspired shout-out session where Paul is just going through and he's saying, say what's up to all my friends. And in there's, while there's a lot of good stuff in here, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? 
One of the things that's most difficult for me is pronouncing names in the Bible, okay? It's, I don't know what it is. I had this horrible experience right after I became a Christian that I was in this discipleship program, and we were going through the Old Testament, and I was made to read out loud, like, First Chronicles, like that whole thousand names or something like that, and it's just butchered me, so I've been praying all week that God would give grace as we work through some of these unfamiliar names. But as we do, we're going to see that Paul loved these people. He has gospel affection for them. He loves them. He cares about them. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through little bit by little bit and kind of pull out some truths that we see about a few of these people. And then we're going to, um, we're going to summarize with three uh, big applicational points from these names. And this is all under the first point of, of gospel friends, which is by far our, our longest point. Verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now it, it appears that the reason that Paul is commending Phoebe here to the Roman church is because she is the one who's delivering the letter to the church in Rome. Cancria is a city that's about six and a half miles away from Corinth, which is where Paul was writing the letter from. So it seems like she was with Paul, gets the letter, and now is heading on her way to Rome. And we don't know a lot about uh, this woman, but we do know that Paul trusts her, and he trusts her enough to give her this all-important letter, and also trusts her enough to tell the church, like, hey, listen, when she shows up, I want you all to welcome her. I want you to welcome her and greet her and give her whatever she needs housing, food, money to carry on the work that, that, that she has been entrusted with. And what, what appears to make Phoebe so commendable is that she's known as a servant. That's what he, he, he calls her there, a servant of the church. Now, because this, the word servant is the same word that's used as, as deacon, many wonder if Phoebe may have served as a deacon in the church of Cancreae. And it's, it's quite possible that she may have, because as serving as a deacon, she wouldn't be do any, doing any of the, the tasks that the New Testament reserves only for men. Uh, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and 3, God tells us that, that the role of elder or overseer is, is reserved for men, because they'll be doing the teaching and the instruction uh, from God's word and carrying spiritual authority. A deacon, however, is an official position that, that men and women are free to serve in, in order to help the elders and to help the church with really practical needs that are, that are raising up. And Phoebe could have done that. I mean, and when you, when you think about this, particularly in the first century where women were overlooked and were not given any kind of, of real public respect or anything like that, Paul, the first name on the list is Phoebe. And then with that, the fact that God, who knew how important this letter to Rome would be, that God Almighty would see this woman as fit to take this letter on a dangerous journey all the way to Rome shows much about, um, about her. But whether she's a deacon or, or not, it doesn't really matter because Phoebe is a servant without the title, with or without it. Single men and women, I think we can learn something from Phoebe here. And I want, to, I want to single out single and, and men and women because I'm going to suspect that Phoebe was single. 
for her to be able to take this kind of trip and, and, and go, she's, she's likely a single woman. And she is a wonderful example of someone who uses her apparent singleness to serve the Lord and to serve his church. Her time and her resources, she could use to really kind of do whatever she wanted. We're going here to support Paul and to support the work of the gospel. So for those of you who aren't married yet, I would, I would ask you, how are you using and stewarding the gift of singleness that God has given you in this, at this time? How are, you, how are you stewarding that? Are you seeking to use that freedom that you have to be like Phoebe? Men and women, let's look to her and be encouraged to be stewards of, of whatever opportunities God gives then in verses 3 and 4, we see Prisca, or also known as Priscilla and Aquila, a courageous couple. So Phoebe was a servant sister. Here, Priscilla and Aquila are a courageous couple. Look uh, there in verse 3. Greet Prisca, also known as Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So aside from Ananias and Sapphira, who didn't do so well, uh, Prisca and Aquila are probably the most well-known couple in, in the New Testament. They show up in Acts, here in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and also in 2 Timothy. And every time that you see this couple mentioned, they're always doing ministry together. That's what marks their marriage. Whether they're in Pontus or in Rome or in Corinth or in Ephesus, you find them helping the church through whatever ways they can, most often, it seems, through hospitality. They've got the Mikasa Sukasa thing going on. Their door is open. They're like, come on, y'all, let's talk about Jesus at our house. That's them. It's interesting because over in Acts 18, it, it tells us that they are they're tent makers by trade, so they had normal jobs. But they are disciple-makers by conviction. That's what marks them. So their lives aren't about their careers, per se, but it's about their calling and their commission that they've given by Jesus. And no matter what city they were in, they are always hosting churches. Every time you see a mention, there's a church in their home in all these different cities, including their, look at verse 5 in Rome, greet also the church in their house. But not only were they hospitable, but they were also theological. I'm not sure if you remember, but from the book of Acts, there was a time when they heard Apollos, who was a really gifted pastor, and he was teaching, but he had some theology that needed some, uh, some adjusting. So they called him over, and they brought him into the house, and they sat him down, and over dinner, they talked to him about the glories of Christ and the gospel, and they helped him to grow. That's them. They are a hospitable, theological couple. They are the classic couple that God holds up as an example for the church to see. And I would say this morning that we who are married, we should learn from them. Married couples, I want to encourage you, don't play it safe. Don't play it safe in your marriages. Listen to this. Paul says, they risked their necks for my life. What a testimony. Husbands, wives, what what a testimony. To be a married couple who's willing to put everything on the line 
so that the gospel ministry can flourish. Is that what marks your home if you're married? Is your marriage and your family oriented around gospel ministry? Now, I understand that ministry can become an idol, and that can be difficult as well. That's true. That's another sermon for another day. But most of us need to hear this sermon. Delray Baptist Church, please hear this. So many couples made up of husbands and wives who truly love Jesus just get into the rut of doing life. And and, and Paul told us it was going to be hard. I mean, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he said, listen, there's going to be trouble if you get married. All right? I know amen's too loud, but there's going to be trouble. It's going to be hard. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be difficulties. You're going to have to run to Walmart and get diapers and do stuff you just never would have done before. And they're good things, but it's easy to get caught up in, in paychecks and baseball leagues and remodeling houses and vacations and TV watching together. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but when they become what our lives and our marriages are about, that becomes a tragedy. Priscilla and Aquila remind us that by the grace of God, we can keep our lives simple and focused on gospel ministry. Husbands, God charges us as the men of the house take the effort to go before the Lord and to pray and say, God, how can we do this better? And to go and ask the elders if we need help and then to lead our wives and our children in this way. May this characterize us. So please pray for marriages in this church that they'd be useful for the gospel. That they'd take unmarried men and women under their wing and just adopt them and bring them in as part of the family. That they'd host community groups and be hospitable to missionaries and interns and reach the neighborhood and the world with the gospel. May that be what marks the marriages of this church. Pray for that. Our next person here is Apinatos. Here in verse 5, he was an early convert. Greet my beloved Apinatos, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. This man... He had to have been special to Paul. When he's thinking about the church in Rome, the Spirit brings to mind Apinatos. Remember a guy he shared the gospel with, and he came and he believed, and his heart's just warm to him. I'm not sure if you've had the honor of leading someone to Christ. What a joy that is to think about those people. So I encourage you this week, think of somebody that you've led to Christ and give them a call or drop them an email. Reach out to them and say, hey, I just thought of you today and wanted to see how you're doing. Or maybe the person who shared the gospel with you. Give them a call and just say, thank you for your stand. I have a, I have a picture in my desk of five guys standing in a row, and it's not pizza or pizza, burgers, but um, five dudes standing in a row. A guy named Dave, and then me, and then Jason, and then Ricky, and then Gary. And it's the gospel line. Dave shared the gospel with me, and I shared with Jason, and Jason and I shared with Ricky, and then just on down the line, I keep that. It's a joy. I look at that picture. I see those brothers, and praise God for that. Pray that God would give us all kinds of pictures like that in our homes, that because of relationships that we're building even now with people who don't know Jesus, that we would see people come to know the Lord, and that for years on end, we'd be able to say, 
how you doing? Keep on walking. If you've never led someone to Christ, pray that God would give you courage to share the gospel. If you're like, I need help and to know how to do that, please come and talk to the elders. Our job is to equip you to do the ministry. We want to help you to be able to learn how to share the gospel. And God is the one who brings fruit, but but may we be that kind of people. And praise God for the people we've seen come to know Christ here. This is Scott and Nikki and Stephen. Praise God. May there be more. Then down in verse 6, we find Mary, a hard-working woman. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Now, Mary is one of the most common names in the Bible. Um, And that means we don't know who this Mary is in Rome. We don't know how old she was. We don't know if she was married. We don't know if she was a new believer or a long-lived saint. We don't know what she looked like. We don't know her bank account balance. We don't even know if she had an official title. She wasn't famous for those things. She was famous for being a hard worker in the church. This no-name saint, as it were, had a heart for gospel work among God's people. She says the same heart as, as Persis, down in verse 12, greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. And again, I think we find instruction from our, our common sisters here. If you want to be remembered for something, be remembered for diligently working with the gospel in your local church. Not so you can get a bunch of attention and like, hey, look at me. That's not what we're talking about here. But that you love God and you love others and you want to take the gospel and you want to apply it to people's lives. We, we don't know exactly what, what she did here. But we do know that she used her gifts and her talents and her abilities and her experiences and her resources to diligently bless her local church. May we be like Mary. Ask God to help you be like Mary. Her. That, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, to manifest Christ's love among the saints. To do what Romans 12, 11 told us. To not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's Mary. May that be like us as well. May God spur us on by these examples of faithful men and women. Now verse, verse 7. Andronicus and Junia, suffering saints, suffering saints. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are known well to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So we've got here a, a pair of Jewish Christians. He calls them kinsmen, that's what he means. Probably Jewish Christians who are who are probably husband and wife, they're listed here together, who Paul says were his, his fellow prisoners. They'd been with Paul in the persecutions. They'd been mocked like he'd been mocked. They'd been arrested like he'd been arrested. They'd been put in shackles like he'd been put in shackles, and maybe even in the same cell with him. They were what you might call purple heart Christians. They bore the marks of Christ even if not on their bodies, certainly in their souls. And they shared a common bond with with Paul that only tears and blood of the persecuted know. And Paul says, say hello to them for me. You'll notice here that they, they were in Christ before Paul. 
They'd walked with God for a long time. And you've got to wonder, what did Paul learn from them? An older, godly couple. It's one of the reasons we pray for older, godly couples to come to this church. We pray that God would bring people with, with gray hair of, of wisdom. Not just because you've got gray hair doesn't mean you're wise. But if you've been walking with Jesus, there's wisdom there. Right, Pete? Amen, yes. <laughs> we pray for that here. Paul seems, seems to love them. May God raise up godly examples. And may God raise up a people here who are willing to suffer for the gospel. Who are willing to be partners no matter what, no matter what God may call us to face. Have you thought much about what it would mean for you to suffer for Christ? Have, have you gone before the Lord and asked him, God, would you give me strength if I were to have to suffer, to lose a friendship over the gospel, or a job over the gospel, because I would not compromise on something I was asked to, to compromise on, or even your very life? May God make us a people who, no matter what the cost, are willing to follow Christ and to be people that, that, Paul, like, that, that Paul could look at and say, fellow prisoners with me. May God protect us and give us mercy, but, but may he give us grace no matter what we face. Then verses 8 through 12, we find groups of gospel friends. Here in verse 12, greets Ompliatos, which is a common slave name. My beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, which is another slave name, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristelebus. Now, many believe this guy to be, from other historical documents, to be the brother of Herod Agrippa. You remember who Herod Agrippa was? He was the guy who Paul stood before, and Paul starts sharing the gospel, and he goes, you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul says, oh yeah, you and everybody here. Well, somebody there might have become a Christian from that interaction. And this, this people who belong there may have been of that line. Verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian, who's a former Jewish slave named after his master, one of the Herods. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Trampina and Tromposa, former slaves who may have been sisters, some believe. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Then verse 13, Rufus. That's a great name, Rufus. The chosen child. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as, as well. Now, this is, this is a bit of speculation, but many believe that this is the same Rufus mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Listen to this. This is speaking of Jesus when he was going to be crucified. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, this is Jesus, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, 
Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. It is quite possible that the son of the man who carried the cross of Jesus later became a Christian himself. There's also tradition that Alexander, who was an early Christian martyr, was Simon's son. Now, we can only speculate, but you've got to wonder if, if he was with his father on that day. Or if later on, when his father came home and sat around the dinner table and, and said, Son, family, let me tell you what I saw today. And that later, at that same dinner table, the Apostle Paul would one day sit, the great persecutor of the church, would sit there and be nourished by the wife of Simon, who he says was like a mother to me. God can change anybody. It's amazing how he works circumstances together. That's Rufus. Then verse 14 and and 15 here. He goes through more names. Uh, He does the same down in verses 21 through 23. Many of these names in 14 and 15 are... Um, Again, slave names. Now, once you look down there at verse uh, 21 uh, through 23, he gives you some people who are with him. So he's given a lot of these these shout-outs to people who are in Rome. And then there's some people who are with him, probably in Corinth, that he he says, hey, they want to say hey to you. So verse 21 and 23, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. This was Paul's uh, disciple, and uh, he shows up 26 times, Timothy does, in 12 books of the New Testament. Uh, and then he says, uh, so Timothy greets you, so do Lucius and Jason and um, Sosipatros, uh, my kinsmen. Um, verse 22, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Now, you may have some questions about that. I thought Paul wrote the letter. Was it, was it Tertius? So this would often happen. It's believed that Paul had very bad eyes. That's why he says to the Galatians, you would even have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Some think that that that's his thorn in the flesh whenever Christ appeared to him and he was blinded. Some think it was a a lasting thorn. Um, Well, anyway, uh, oftentimes Paul would, he would, under the inspiration of the Spirit, dictate the letter to to somebody who would pen it for them. Tertius was was that guy. And then verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greets you. So you got name after name after name, a lot of interesting things there that I think are helpful. Um, but I want us, to, I want us to, to consider three themes that we see in this list of names. And again, this is all under the longest point of gospel friends. The first thing is to notice the names of gospel friends. Notice the names of gospel friends. 34 friends mentioned here in chapter 16, not including Paul. And though Paul had not been there, he knew a bunch of these people, and he loved them from afar. And he wanted them to love each other up close. And knowing names helps you to love people. Knowing names helps you to love people. Now, some of us, that's just hard. You're like, I remember everything about that person. I remember what they were wearing the first team. I remember they were where they just came from on vacation. I remember what their car looks like. I remember the name of their dog, but I can't remember their name. Some of us just have that disease, I'm among those, okay? But it is good for us to work at learning one another's names. 
to not just say, oh, there's that person I go to church with. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. How you doing, buddy? You know, like that stuff, which that happens, all right? But, but one of the great graces of a church directory that we update very regularly is so that you can be praying for people by name, praying for people's children by name. Because there's something about when you come up to somebody and you know their name. Now, pause. Grace, all right, you also, after the service, when somebody comes up and says, hey, brother, how you doing? Just forget it, okay? Doesn't mean they don't love you because they don't remember your name, even if you've been introduced a bunch of times. We give a lot of grace here in this. But let's strive toward that, where we know one another. Now, the reason I'm making a bigger deal about this is because, as one pastor pointed out, this is, it's actually Christ-like to know each other's names. Listen to this from John 10. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus knows the name of those that he purchased on the cross. He knows them, and he loves them, and he wants us to love them as well. So let this list of names move you to know each other in a personal way, not just a person sitting over there kind of way. And and, and pray for God to form deep friendships here. Spiritual growth, I, I think, happens best in the soil of friendships. So if you're able to stay here for a long time, would you consider staying here? and partnering long-term in this part of God's vineyard, where we can see God do amazing things together for a long time, be in each other's homes and each other's lives, eat together, watch ball games together, pray with each other, laugh with each other, weep with each other. God uses those kinds of experiences to deepen love for each other. Now, some of you joined this church because it was a smaller church and you were hoping that it would be easier to make friends here. Some of you have made friends like that and some of you haven't. Some of you still feel lonely. I want to encourage you not to lose heart. You are known by name, by the Lord, and if you are struggling, please come and tell the elders. We can't fix everything, but we want to be able to help you get plugged in. Know that if you are a member here, you're not just a name. We pray as the elders regularly through the directory for you. Show that same kind of love for others. So notice the names. Number two, notice terms of gospel affection. Notice these terms of gospel affection. He calls them saints, servant, sister, patron, which means helper, brother, fellow worker, fellow prisoner, kinsman, beloved, approved, chosen. He calls one person a mother to him. Those are warm words, not distant terms. That is because the church is not a corporation. It's not a country club. It is a family of blood-bought children of God who are knit together by His grace, by His Spirit. And as He knits the church together, he, He helps us to learn to enjoy each other. But not just for the sake of enjoying. So we want those kind of friendships, but but those friendships form deep gospel partnerships. That's why Paul mentioned several times these fellow workers in the gospel. He's like, I love them, and I like them, but I love partnering in the gospel with them. I mean, and that's amazing. Even for the apostle Paul, he's calling people partners in the gospel, and dude was an apostle. And he still knew that he needed other people to partner together. 
And he loves them for that. Because they're in this common cause of making Christ known to the nations. And that's why he greeted them so warmly. The word greet there shows up 22 times in six verses. And the word means to welcome or to embrace. So it's like Paul's giving this pastoral bear hug through this letter to everybody who's there. He's, just, he's a hugger, I guess. He's that guy. But it's because he loves them. And that's what the gospel does. Not respect each other's personal space, but love each other in the gospel. Let's have warm gospel affection toward each other. So Delray Baptist, pray that God would do that here. See, this, this part of our country is wired against depth in relationships. Everybody's so busy. It's so easy to stack up your schedules. Everybody lives all over the place. You're exhausted when you get home. It is, the, the deck is stacked against you having deep, meaningful relationships in this part of the country. But in the gospel, it's possible. It is possible. Pray that God would help us to see how to do that well and to make it a priority. We may have to simplify our lives, but if we simplify them and focus them on the right things, God uses that, I believe. So we've got names of gospel friends, terms of gospel affection, and then notice here, finally, uh, under this long point one, diversity in gospel unity. Notice the diversity in gospel unity. One of the things that that marks this list is tremendous diversity. There are men and women, almost equally named. Many of these names are slave names. And as we said many times before, having slaves is certainly an evil thing. And, And we see here that the gospel is not subject to cultural evils. In the church, slaves and former slaves sit alongside people from Herod's family. God does that in the church. The Roman church was was a place, as all churches should be, where Jew and Gentile, the wealthy and those on welfare, simple and sophisticated, all gather together without distinction. Like right now, In one sense, you don't know what everybody... Nobody's in here waving political banners or any of that mess here. We're about Christ. We're about the gospel. And that's what Jesus does. He unifies people to where we would all say that we are diverse. There's all kinds of diversity. And pray that God would make it even more diverse here. We long for that. We think it's a beautiful portrayal of the gospel. But but we would say here that first, I'm not a white dude from West Virginia. First, I'm a Christian. That's who I am. I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian. Saved by the blood of Christ, and because of that, everything else remains important to who we are, and love wants to know about that diversity. Tell me your story. What was it like to have been a slave? I'm sorry that my family had something to do with that. What was it like to be be a woman in this culture? What's it like to be a man in this culture? What's it like to be... Um, a minority in this church? What's it like to try and sing where there's no drum or no beat? God help us. What's that like? Get to know each other. Just because it's comfortable for you doesn't mean it's comfortable for everybody, but love wants to know about that. And that's happening in this church in Rome here. They care enough about each other. They care enough about each other to ask these questions. 
So let's, let's first be Christians. I mean, when you look through here, you see these names of people who were named after Greek gods and goddesses who now have a new identity. Verse 2, in the Lord. Verse 3, in, in Christ Jesus. In Christ, in the Lord. In the Lord, in the Lord. That's who we are. We're Christians united in the gospel. So as the Spirit led Paul to pen these greetings and to give us what I, what I hope was for you as it was for me this week, some rich gospel reminders. We see here that now God steers the apostles' heart and his pen to move from giving welcomes to now giving warnings. Because something lurks near to the church in Rome and to every other church who's ever going to read this letter. Because not everybody are gospel friends. There are also gospel enemies. Gospel enemies, which is point number two. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers. It's the words of Delphoi. It means brothers and sisters. Or in Texas, y'all. I appeal to y'all to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So you can see here how how the Spirit worked in, in the inspiration of the Scriptures, how the Spirit worked with a real man, Paul, who had real love for these people, and how the Spirit here moves him in the midst of this gospel affection that he feels for them to all of a sudden feel terror almost, to lead him to just say, and then watch out, because not everybody loves you like I love you. And not everybody loves Jesus like y'all love Jesus. There is an enemy. There's an enemy. So we're going to see here that we need to keep our eye open for gospel enemies. And we need to keep a distance from gospel enemies. Both of those things are found here in this, this text. So first, keep your eye open for gospel enemies. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Watch out. Keep your eyes open. Be on the alert. Pay attention to. Watch closely. Because danger lurks near to you. There are people who want to do spiritual harm to you. Paul's echoing Jesus in in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Paul warns so many of his churches of these bloodthirsty wolves who are seeking opportunity to deceive the naive. Paul says they want to get you. So watch out because verse 19, your obedience is known to all. I rejoice over you. Paul says, listen guys, you are a prime target for the evil one. And the reason is because you're famous for your faith and your faithfulness to the Lord. You're you're spiritually a, a city set on a hill. 
whose obedience shines for all to see to say that Christ is worthy of our lives. That's what you guys are known for. And Satan would love nothing more than to take that down. And what is his strategy? To send wolves among the sheep. He says, watch out, verse 17. They come to cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. They want to undermine what you've heard about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about the gospel and about the church and about the Bible. They want to, like, like a wolf, attack a flock. Have you ever seen those, those videos where, where a wolf will come in and, and hit a flock and, and try and peel off one or two or ten and rally them up for, for lunch? Well, that's what he's saying wants to happen here. They want to divide you. They want to break down this, this gospel unity. They're enemies of the unity that Jesus prayed for and bled for and that the Holy Spirit through this book of Romans has been pleading that we would pursue. I'm not sure if you've ever been around false teachers before. Have you ever been at a church where you've seen this happen? I have several friends who who are in the ministry have have seen this. I was at a church, I was an elder at a a church where this happened, where, where people come in and at first, they seem like the answer to prayer because they're so kind and they know so much about the word. But he warns you in verse 18 that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They sound so spiritual, so insightful. I've never thought of it that way before. They see mysteries that no one else seems to be able to grasp. They, they know how to do some, some voodoo with Greek and Hebrew to where like, oh, that's the deep, unlocked mysteries. I saw, I mean, I saw a dude do that on TV a couple, couple months ago where he pulled out some Hebrew word and like did some hocus pocus and next thing you know, everybody in the place was supposed to be rich. And I was like, that's not what that word means. But nobody else knows that. They're smooth, crafty. False teachers, they... They claim to want to help you get closer to God. But verse 18, he says, Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their appetites. They are belly worshipers. They're not motivated by eternal rewards and the hope of of one day hearing, Well done, good and faithful servant. They have lower hopes, worldly ones. They love what ministry gives them. Attention. They want to be up front. Power. Authority, influence, control. They want their egos stoked. They want money. They want sex. They will misuse the gospel to abuse sheep. Delray Baptist Church, keep your eye open for gospel enemies. This word is given to the church, not just to the elders of the church, it's given to the church. It's our responsibility. And Shai rightly pointed out to me this week that there's, there's a unique danger with false teaching in our day. Because never before in history has, has the teaching of false teachers been so easily accessible as it is today. Through podcasts and TV and Twitter and radio and bookstores. Just because a Christian or a bookstore says it's a Christian bookstore doesn't mean it's got Christian books in it. There's so much garbage out there. So much just trash. It is not about Jesus. 
Just yesterday, I was, I was at a, a, a picnic for a friend who's going off to be a missionary, and I was talking to a guy who's going to a church that's, that's fine, um, but then he talked about how, but he loves on Sunday morning before he goes to church to just listen to Joel Osteen. He just gets so fed by him. I was like, man, it's crafty. Sounds nice. But to not tell the whole truth is to lie. And that's what many do. Delray Baptist Church, please practice discernment. We are a church who Satan would love to bring down. Not because there's something famous or special, but, but there's people here who love God. There are people in this church who, who want to make Jesus known among the nations. There's people here who sacrifice comforts for the sake of the gospel of Christ, and Satan hates that. He hates the fact that people are coming to know Jesus here, that people are growing in the gospel. He hates that. I don't say that to spook you, but I say that to say, tune in. Just because I say stuff up here, like, listen, my intent is to never harm you. The elder's intent is to never harm you, to never put somebody in the pulpit who is going to harm you. But it's your responsibility to listen, to practice discernment, to check what's said according to the scriptures. Don't be so skeptical you can't hear God's word, but, but we should be cautious. And then he tells you also to keep your distance from, from gospel enemies. He tells us to, to watch out and to avoid these false teachers. They want to bring division, so you must divide from them. There's no need to draw near and to give them an ear. He says, stay far away. If they're part of the church, that means that they either need to repent and avoid the false teaching, or they need to be publicly rebuked, and the congregation needs to avoid giving them any kind of assurance of faith through membership or any kind of opportunity to speak lies, to avoid them. Now, some people are thinking, dude, that's harsh. Listen, Jesus loves his people. And he shed his blood for them. And he has handed down truth from heaven that we have no right to adjust. God made us in his image. We do not have the right to make him into ours. And that's what false teaching always wants to do. It wants to make it more about us. We don't have the right to do that. We will give an account. We should love people. Jesus told us to do that. We shouldn't stop caring for people and depending on how things go, talking to people. But we need to we need to avoid. Now, the, the final word I want to say on this before we go to our, our, our third and final point is this. If you are here this morning and you are a wolf, if you've come in and you've got some, some teaching that you're hoping to promote new ideas that would not line up with orthodoxy, we want you to know that you are not welcome here. This is a place for all sorts of people. This room is filled with sinners. There's nobody in here who's got it together. But if you've come here to deceive the sheep that Jesus bled for, that he died for, that he rose for, that he called to himself, I want you to know that the elders of this church will not have it. Hear it, please. This is not the place for you. We would encourage you to repent and to trust in Christ and to believe the true gospel. Delray Baptist Church, be on, on the watch and pray for God to protect us. One of the great reasons that we, we have to hope that he will protect us is because of 
the gospel promises that he gives us. Our third and final point in the way that we will conclude our study in the book of Romans. Gospel promises. In these final verses, the Spirit leads Paul to once more apply the gospel that's been so clearly given all the way through this book. And he applies it in two ways. One with a promise about Satan, and another with a promise about strength. So, a promise about Satan and a promise about strength. Let's do, take Satan first here. The gospel promises that Satan will soon be crushed. Satan will soon be crushed. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, on the heels of his words about false teachers, the Lord gives promise that the heels of God's people will fall upon the neck of Goliath. Satan will be put down. Probably flowed right after the teaching about false teachers because it's Satan who's behind them. And it's interesting that in this this very deep book on theology, this is the first time that Satan has been mentioned in Romans by name. Possible allusion in chapter 8, but um, I think that's instructive for us, especially new Christians. Satan should not be your focus. Demons should not be your focus. Angels and the mysteries of the things there should not be your focus. Christ is our focus. We make much of him. And God wants his people to take comfort in the fact that there is a day coming when the tempter who has terrorized us for so long will one day be put down once and for all. Now some of us may wonder what he means when he says that God will crush Satan under your feet, under our feet. And what does he mean by soon and by us? Well, Genesis chapter 3.15, right after Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, the devil, and they sinned against God, God put a curse on humanity and then he gave a promise. And he promised that one day he would send a descendant of the woman to come and to rescue us. And then he said to Satan in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, this, this Savior who's coming, he shall crush your head. He's going to crush your head. And you will crush or bruise his heel. A savior is going to come who will crush Satan. Now, in one sense, in the greatest sense, that's already happened. In another sense, that's happening right now. And in another sense, it is going to happen. It will happen. So, Satan has been crushed. When Jesus came... He came to do many things. One of them was to destroy Satan. 1 John 3, 8. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to defeat Satan. And he did that most decisively on the cross and through the resurrection. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Which, by the way, if you're a Christian, you want to know where you can find the list of your sins? You can't. Because it's nailed to the cross. Paid in full. 
But then he goes on to say that that Jesus' death didn't just put an end to your sin, it put an end to Satan as well. In verse 15 of Colossians it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and the demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We could go on and on, but that is what has happened at the cross. That Christ, through his death and his resurrection, he defeated Satan. Done. Loser. Now, Satan is also being crushed right now. So he has been crushed, and he's being crushed even now. So we as Christians, though we know the battle has been won, or that the war has been won, there are battles that rage on. Ephesians 6 that there's a, says that there's a spiritual battle that, that happens right now, that we engage in with the sword of the Spirit, that 2 Corinthians says that we are tearing down speculations and lies that are raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what happens right now. Even now, as the gospel goes out, lies are exposed and put down. When you counsel with your your friends and you tell them truth, lies are brought down. When you share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, we do it with the hope that that very thing will happen. That this, that 2 Timothy 2, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. So what that means right now, and I, if, you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, listen, this, this Satan stuff, this isn't like, you know, hocus pocus Bigfoot stuff. Like, this is, this is a real deal. Jesus is real and Satan is real and he's, he blinds people to the truth. But by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ, you can be born again. And part of what happens is that the veil is lifted and we see So through conversions, Satan is being put down. And then finally, Satan will be crushed. There is a day coming soon when temptation will be retired forever. Evil will be expelled once and for all. Perversion will be put to rest. Sin will die with Satan. That's coming soon. Listen to this this promise that's set before us in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Speaking of the final battle between God and evil. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, Satan, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, we don't know exactly what, how we will be involved with that, but we will be with our Lord, and there's going to be some, some stomping on that final day upon the neck of Satan. And we will never fear evil again. We will never weep because of sin again. We will rejoice forever and ever because of his destruction. That's a gospel promise. So as it's hard in this life, we're renewed with that hope. And then finally, we are renewed in strength. The gospel promises that strength will be given by Christ. Verses 24, or 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. In this doxology, this, this section that, that gives us promises about God that lead us to, to give him glory, we find the promise for strength. Did you see that there? 
to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ? Do you need strength this morning? Did you come hoping for some kind of word that would help you to make it one more day? Do you need strength to help fight sin that has just been been seemingly to, to take you out time and time again? Do you need strength to obey God's commands? Do you need strength to love people who are difficult to love? Do you need strength to take the gospel to those who have not heard? Do you need strength to forgive, to be hospitable, to love, to encourage? Well, the good news is that there is strength in the gospel. And the reason is because the gospel is about Jesus. And what what God does in the most seems simple way is that when Christ is lifted up and we see him for who he is and we see what he has done on behalf of people who did nothing to deserve it, we are moved by his grace. Our affections are stirred. Our hearts are warmed. And we are strengthened in the power of the gospel to do the things that God has called us to do. So one of the things I would encourage you to do if you, if you weren't part of the group who memorized Romans chapter 8, I encourage you to come back there and spend time in Romans 8. Romans 8 has in it promise after promise after promise that you, God uses to strengthen us. So when you, you fail and you give in to sin, confess that sin, repent of that sin, and rejoice in the fact that you are forgiven, and grab a hold of that gospel promise in Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiven. Debt is canceled. Where is my sin? It is nailed to the cross. Rejoice in those promises, and you find strength. When you feel alone, and you feel like everyone has left you, Know that you are not alone because Christ came for you and he called you to himself and he went to the cross for you and then he rose from the dead and now by his spirit appears to us and draws us unto himself. And we have this promise from Romans 8.39 that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grab those gospel promises and apply them to your heart and be strengthened. And when you're suffering and it seems endless, you feel like you can't go on. Rest in the fact that because God is a good and sovereign God and that Jesus is the risen Lord, we can say in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Be strengthened in that glory. The glory of God that has been revealed in this, this book of, of Romans. So let us be a church as gospel friends who avoid gospel enemies. Let us be strengthened by the promises of the gospel together, looking for that day when Christ will return. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truths of the gospel that strengthen us to press on and press in not just in trying harder, but press on and press in to Christ, to knowing him and loving him. God, may we be a church that is characterized by deep abiding love for one another that is marked clearly by your protection and that is warmed often by the gospel and the strength of the glories of Christ. Oh God, would you help us as a church to arise, to put our armor on, to hear the call of Christ who is our captain 
and to go out into battle until that day when we shall see his face. Father, send your son. Until then, help us to be faithful. In his name we pray.